0: Please open up your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. If so you're using the Bibles we've provided, I believe that's on page 1001 and 2. This morning, as we look at this passage, we're going to begin with Hebrews chapter 2's warning. And as kind of a roadmap map for our time, after that warning, we're going to look at an overview of the argument... That Hebrews 2 makes. So in chapter 2, the author of Hebrews argues that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered as a man and died for sinners. That's the argument that we'll spend some time unpacking. But the, most of our, the majority of our time we'll spend looking at how Jesus is our high priest who helps us as sinners. So that's our general over, over, uh, overarching map, is looking at the warning, the argument, and then looking at how Jesus helps us. Let's begin by reading these first four verses of Hebrews chapter 2, they're on page 1001 and the Bible's provided. Listen to God's word. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So again, as I said, chapter 2 here begins with this warning, a warning about drifting away from the truth of Jesus that we heard in chapter 1. So you kind of see these first two chapters, the beginnings, run in in parallel to each other. Chapter 1 said that long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So chapter 1 says that God's spoken to us His final word through His Son, and now chapter 2 begins with a warning not to drift away from what we've heard through the Son. What we heard in chapter 1 is that Jesus is God Himself. He's the, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and yet Jesus became a man so that He can make purification for sins. And after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Hebrews chapter 1 proclaims Jesus as both the eternal divine son by nature and as the exalted messianic son by virtue of his obedience as the God-man. This is the foundation for the great salvation of Hebrews chapter 2 that we're not to drift away from. But Hebrews chapter 2 carries this point this step further by offering this warning. And as he offers this warning, the author sets up a kind of comparison, or really two comparisons, between what has been declared in the Mosaic Law, that's what he means here when he talks about what has been declared through angels, and what God has revealed in these last days. This comparison highlights how intimately God has been involved in revealing the gospel, So it says this message was declared by the Lord. It was attested by Christ's apostles, those who heard from Christ. And then God bore witness to this message with signs and wonders and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. Here we have Father, Son, and Spirit working in unity to reveal the good news of salvation in Christ. And this is not to kind of distance the Old Covenant from God's revelation, but it it shows that God has kind of ramped up his involvement in revealing this salvation in Christ. That's one comparison. And the other comparison seems to be that the salvation that Jesus accomplished is greater than what God offered in the Old Covenant. Christ has come to provide something that the law could not, and so we must pay closer attention to what we've heard through Christ. But here's the payoff of the warning. If those who disobeyed the law received just condemnation for their sin, how much more will those who neglect and reject the message of Christ receive condemnation? Everything the author says here about God's revelation has this pastoral goal: Don't give up on Christ. If you've heard the message of Christ and you're tempted to, to turn away from it and look elsewhere, don't do it. And how much more greater will your condemnation be if you reject God's great salvation revealed in Christ? If you neglect Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became a man and died for sinners, there is no way for you to escape God's judgment. There's no salvation outside We should have this same urgency in believing the gospel for ourselves and in preaching the gospel to others. There is no salvation outside of Christ. Now we know almost nothing in the way of specific details about what the audience of Hebrews was facing. From reading the letter we get the idea that they were tempted to drift away from Christ and back to some form of of old covenant religion. Now, that doesn't hold much attraction for us. We're not really attracted to trying to submit to the Mosaic law. But we do know that there are things that tempt us to drift away from Christ. What is that for you? What tempts you to drift away from Christ? We need to hear this warning that the author of Hebrews gives. Not to drift away to that which was handed down to us by God through Christ and his apostles. Don't drift away from faith in Christ. Don't drift away from seeing that Christ is enough for you. Don't drift away from Jesus, the incarnate Son, crucified, risen, and exalted. No matter how tempting other ways of life may seem, no matter what other religions or philosophies can promise you, remember there is no salvation outside of Christ. Instead of drifting away, the author of Hebrews calls us to pay even closer attention to what God has spoken to us through Jesus and his apostles. In a way, this is proclaiming the ordinary means of grace. Sit under the word of God, among the people of God. Attend to what God has said. You could say that's a kind of introduction to Hebrews 2, but also the whole letter. Don't neglect the great salvation that God provides in Christ. But having given us this introductory warning that not neglect this great salvation, the author of Hebrews then moves on in chapter two to tell us why that salvation is so great. So that's kind of the the movement of the chapter. First, don't neglect the salvation. Now, here's why that salvation is so great. So for this second part of our time, I want us to unpack the argument of why the salvation is so great. And then we'll move on to how Christ helps sinners. So the author begins his exposition of this great salvation in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And here he's quoting, as Pastor Tim said, from Psalm 8, or part of Psalm 8. And he uses this quote to say that God didn't subject the world to angels, but God did subject the world to man, to human beings. And we read in verses 5 through 8 that, Paul, uh, that, that the psalmist is, is first talking about people in general. Mankind in general, before he then goes, and implies these same words to Christ. So let's read this, this part of Hebrews that quotes Psalm 8, beginning of chapter five, I mean chapter 2, verse 5, and reading down through the end, of uh, verse 10. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him? You made him, for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The author is making a point in the Psalms about the creation of humanity in general. And that's what the author of Hebrews first picks up on. God made human beings. He made man a little lower than the angels. And he gave Adam and Eve the high calling of ruling over everything. Everything. Right? He, he called them to, to take dominion over the earth and to be fruitful and multiply. So that's what it means when it says you've crowned him, mankind, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection to him. Now, this sounds a little strange to us because we are so used to talking about the sinfulness of man. If we talk about man, that's usually what we're after that we don't think of this kind of exalted position. But, but when we think about it, we do see Adam and Eve serving as kind of a, a priest-kings of the Garden of Eden with this, with this calling, this command to, to subdue the earth and to fill it with worshipers of God. God gave them dominion over all things. And, and that's not ever repeated to mankind after that initial call. So after man falls into sin, he's not given that call again. Adam and Eve were to subdue the earth And yet, what we see is that they fail to do so. They were supposed to be rulers and representatives of God on earth, but we know that in actuality, whatever rule they enjoyed was short-lived. The author of Hebrews makes this point in verse 8 when he says that when we look around at our world now, we do not see everything in subjection to him, in subjection to mankind, It seems that as soon as Adam and Eve received the call to rule, they spoiled it with their sin. We were supposed to rule over everything, but we could not even rule over ourselves. And so mankind failed to achieve the glory God had set out for them. We failed in our kingship. One Old Testament professor I had said you could see the fall as a kind of dethronement story. The the return to dust. So instead of serving as God's rulers, we rebelled and lost control. That we do not yet see in the middle of verse 8 is getting at the disorder that sin introduced into the world. We do not yet see humankind exercising the kind of glorious rule that God intended for us. But there is a glorious but that comes in verse 9. We do not see all things in subjection to mankind in general, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death. This is the essence of the great salvation. Man is in a desperate and hopeless situation. We've fallen from created glory. We're enslaved to the devil who has the power of death. But the Son of God became a man to save us. And he succeeded in his mission, which required the suffering of death. And because he suffered and died without sin, he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And he was crowned there with glory and honor. The crowning with glory and honor that was Adam and Eve's initially that they kind of spoiled, Christ receives because of his faithful suffering. That's a very quick sketch of the author's argument. But there's one key part of the mission that our quick overview didn't mention. It's very important to Hebrews, and that is that Jesus, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's almost like he sneaks it in there after making purification for sins, right? After ascending into heaven, but before sitting down on the throne of God, Jesus made purification. For sins, This is the work that a priest does. And that's exactly what we find Jesus doing in Hebrews chapter 2. We find in 2.17 2, that Jesus became a man like us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. A key to the greatness of this salvation is that our high priest is a man like us, but not a sinner like us. Jesus is not a son of Aaron who serves for a little while and dies. He's not a son of Aaron who has to make atonement for his own sin. Our high priest is Jesus. He is perfect and more powerful than sin and death itself. And the offering he makes, not the offering of a A blood, a bull or a goat—it's his own body sacrificed for sin. He offers himself, his body broken for his people, his blood poured out for the remission of sin. And he performs this priestly work not in an earthly tabernacle, not in an earthly copy. He performs it in heaven's throne room, before God himself. The salvation is so great because we are served by such a great high priest. So we're still here in overview mode, we're still looking at the argument, but there's one detail I want to drill down on. It's probably the most confusing part of this passage, if you read it carefully this week. In chapter 2, verse 10, the author says, For it was fitting that He, that's speaking of Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory, I'm sorry, it's fitting that He, God, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect suffering, God is said here to make Jesus perfect through suffering. And that seems completely wrong to us, right? We think Jesus is perfect. In what sense does he need to be perfected? Well, it helps if we replace the word perfected with completed. That's the sense of perfection here, to bring to completion. Jesus became our merciful and faithful high priest after he completed his suffering for us. He had to become like us in every respect and die in our place to serve us as high priests and to offer himself for our sin. We see this in verse 9 in that Jesus is said to be crowned with glory and honor because of his death. Because of his death. So Christ Jesus enters the heavenly holy of holies having perfectly endured the worst that sin and death could throw at him. And once there, because he's completed this task, he's able to turn away the wrath of God from sinners by offering himself as payment for our sin. He propitiates God's wrath. So Jesus achieves here what Adam and Eve did not. They were made to be crowned with glory and honor, but they were dethroned because of their sin. But Jesus, the Son of God, made man, came to defeat sin by dying on the cross. And after He completed this work on earth, He ascended into heaven, where, as our merciful and faithful High Priest, He offers Himself for purification for our sins. He made purification for our sins, and then He sat down as the King who reigns forever. And so it's our glorious joy to confess the words of verse 9. When we look around at the world, we see it's not... Perfect, right? It's far from it. It's full of war and devastation. We see that things are, are not as they should be. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death. That is our great salvation. We see our Savior crowned because of his saving work. And the reason this salvation is so great is because he did it for our sake. We are the beneficiaries. He did this to help us. The Son of God became a man and suffered death and conquered death to help us. That's the big payoff of verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The point of this overview is so that we can get to this point. That Jesus, our great high priest, helps us. So how does this happen? How are we helped it by Jesus, the high priest? How do we lay hold of this help? Well, that's where I want to spend the bulk of our time, looking at three big ways Jesus helps us. So first, Jesus helps us as our brother. When we're tempted, Jesus helps us as our brother. Let's read verses 11 through 15. I'm sorry, 11 through 16. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. So we find here that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers because he shares in our human nature. That word brothers doesn't exclude women. We could say Christ's siblings here. The idea of the Son of God's incarnation pervades our passage. That's what the author means when he says that Jesus was for a little while made lower than the angels. The Son of God, for a little while, even though he's exalted over angels and superior to angels... He took on flesh and became lower than the angels like us. The author makes the same point again in verse 14, very explicitly saying, therefore, since therefore the children, which means God's people, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The Son of God partook of the flesh and blood. He, he took to himself human flesh. That, word, the, that reference to the children in verse 14 picks up the quote from Isaiah in chapter uh, in verse 13, where, where, I, where Jesus is quoted as talking about his children trusting the Lord. So we see here that the Son of God freely identifies himself with us by adding to himself a true human nature. And even as the Son of God takes to himself human nature, he doesn't sh- sort of shed off his divinity while doing so. He is the God who became man and yet remains the God-man And he is still the God-man as he sits exalted in heaven. Jesus willingly humbled himself to join us in flesh and blood. Everything else the author has to say about how Jesus helps us hinges on the truth that Jesus is both God and man. Now one of Satan's strategies when he tempts us is to isolate us. Right, we feel like perhaps we're the only one who struggles with that particular temptation, or we feel a shame in confessing our sin. We may think that God wants to have nothing to do with us. But in Jesus, the God man, we see our brother. He took on our flesh and blood in order to save us, He didn't try to remain at a safe distance, He took on flesh and blood. And so we don't fight temptation alone. If we try to fight temptation alone, it it never works. That's a sure way to fail in our fight. The only way to fight temptation is with Jesus, our brother, who suffered when tempted. Jesus, our brother, shows us that we fight temptation by faith in God. And that's the point of these quotations from Psalm 22 and, and from Isaiah 8 that we find in verses 12 and 13. We see here that Jesus was the perfect believer. Again, that's something that may sound strange. We think, well, Jesus is God, how can he be a believer? But Jesus was truly man, he was a perfect man. And so he had perfect faith in his Father. In the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, in the midst of being rejected by his own brothers and and tortured to death, Jesus never wavered in his faith in the Father. The first quote we see is from Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. If you know the Psalms well, you know this is also the psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross. Verse 1 of Psalm 22 is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So most of the psalm is a, a lament in the face of persecution and death. But the part that, the, that is quoted here and attributed to Jesus, is where the psalm kind of begins to turn. These lament psalms often have that point where they turn, right? So it comes right after the psalmist sort of finished praying about death, about the, the sword threatening him, about being saved from the mouth of the lion. He prays for that, and then he professes his commitment to God. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the face of death, I will sing your praises in the midst of the congregation. So not only does Jesus, the perfect believer, remain faithful to God, he remains faithful in his ministry to his brothers. He remains faithful in proclaiming the good news and the saving name of God. He resolves to praise God, to sing, praise, to sing praises to God with his brothers in the face of death. What do we do when sin tempts us to despair? Our brother Jesus shows us. Sing God's praises in the congregation of God's people. The next quotation comes from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. In Isaiah's generation, Judah was facing mounting threats from the Assyrians and the northern tribes of Israel. And Isaiah knew that God's judgment was coming, and he warns King Ahaz about that. And so Isaiah is faced with a choice between trusting God or not, because everybody around him is not, including the king. So in the context, Isaiah resolves to stay true to God's word and wait for the Lord. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 8:17 8, and 18. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Isaiah understood himself and his family as sort of living signs, living parables of someone who's trusting the Lord in the face of judgment. Even as all Israel goes astray, Isaiah is standing. And the the author of Hebrews reveals Isaiah here to be a type of Jesus. Jesus faithfully held to God's word in the face of judgment, even as other Israelites fall away. Again, our brother Jesus shows himself to be the perfect believer, the founder of our faith. That language comes from this passage, but also in Hebrews chapter 12. Let me read for you there, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus' example shows us how to fight when temptation comes. We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus because in Jesus we have hope of glory. Just the way Jesus looked to hope of glory and faced down death. When we're tempted to sin, imitate Christ by enduring obedience for the sake of the joy set before us our brother Jesus it said here suffered when was when he was tempted now there is a distinction to be made here between our experience of temptation and Jesus you could describe for us sort of two categories of temptation the one we may be most common or most familiar with is the temptations that arise from within like our hearts are sort of always inventing New things to be tempted by, new things to desire, new sins to commit. That comes from within. But there is also this temptation that comes from without, right? You see something that maybe elicits covetousness, or, or others put pressure on you, and you're threatened in some way to, to uh, turn away from Christ. And this is what Jesus experienced more, this, this second kind of temptation. He had none of that first kind, he had no sin within himself to draw him away, but he did face real temptation. And Hebrews said that he suffered as he battled temptation. Hebrews says that Christ's suffering with temptation was actually greater than anything we experienced. See, we seem to think that because Christ was perfect, he didn't really, really face temptation. It was kind of like temp- temptation light. You know, it was temptation. No, dude. Jesus says that his temptation was, was real And more intense than anything we experience, because he never gave in to temptation. You may have heard this quote before because when I read it, I thought, I think I've heard this a thousand times, but Leon Morris says that the man who yields to temptation has not felt its full power. Only the man who does not yield to temptation knows the full extent of that temptation. Because he was perfect, Jesus' experience of temptation was more intense because he resisted to the end. Jesus had a human body, so he was capable of suffering hunger and exhaustion and pain and death. But through all his temptations, our brother did not yield. He, he blazed a trail of faith in the face of suffering. Jesus had heard God's testimony, Jesus knew God's will. And he knew that that will meant that he would suffer death. But he never let his bodily weakness serve as an excuse for rebelling against God's will. As Hebrew 12 verse 4 implies, Jesus resisted temptation to the point of shedding his own blood. Our brother trusted that the glory of the exaltation was worth the shame of the cross. A few, a few minutes ago in our New Testament reading, Brother Jeff read for us that famous verse we're familiar with at the end of that passage where, where God promises that, that he'll provide a way of escape in the face of temptation. And it's, it's easy to read that verse as to say, well, if the, the trial gets too great, God will let off the intensity. But what we need to see is that Jesus' way of escape came through obedience and death. Your way of escape may lead to your death. Because what that way of escape is, is not a way out of trouble. It's a way out of sin. The way of escape for us lies in faith. That's what Jesus' example shows us. We don't need to put on a show of strength. We should admit that we are tempted by sin. Can we, can we start there? All admit that. Jesus, our God, our Lord, our high priest, our brother, was tempted. And he suffered when he was tempted. And he shows us it's possible to resist temptation. Again, Christ's obedience led him through death. Our temptation and our obedience may lead us through the same. The 17th century pastor theologian John Owen wrote, The great duty of tempted souls is to cry out unto the Lord Christ for help and relief. We fight sin by trusting in the promises of God to us in Christ. That is what our brother Jesus shows us to do. So Jesus helps the tempted as our brother who suffered when he was tempted. To say that Jesus is our brother is a way of drawing our attention to Jesus as an example of faith. But Jesus is much more than an example. He is the object of our faith. I think that's one of the, the strange and wonderful things about studying Jesus is that you see Jesus has all these different roles. He is an example of faith in God, but he is also the God himself in whom we trust. So Jesus is the object of our, our faith, and, and that leads us to the second way he helps us. Jesus helps us as our Savior. I want us to understand he is our Savior and Hebrews makes this point about Jesus being our Savior in three ways. So now we have a point and three subpoints. All right. So first, Jesus helps us by tasting death for us. He is our Savior because he tastes death for us. That's what we see in verse 9. That we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, and he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, we've already talked about the bit that he was crowned with glory because of his sinless suffering. But notice this, the rest of the verse. By the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for us. His death is for us. He didn't die for himself. He tasted death for everyone who believes in him. He didn't die for his own sin, but for ours. We are part of Adam's failed race, right? We have to put ourselves into a category. That's the category we fit in. The category of human beings who, who, de- who were dethroned because of our sin. In the words of verse 15, we are those who through fear of death are subject to a lifelong slavery to death. But Jesus is the son of God who became man, and he tasted death. He subjected himself to the wrath of God for our sakes. God suffered God's wrath for us. But for Jesus, death is not the final word because of his righteousness. I wonder if this is why the author uses this image of tasting death. He tasted it, but the poison did not keep him down forever. He tasted it, but death did not consume him. He rose from the dead. So to be saved by Jesus, you must believe that his death is for you. Kids, I hope that you understand this as you grew up in this church and hearing our preaching, that you understand that that we're calling you to believe that Jesus' death is for you. We have to understand ourselves to deserve punishment from God because of our sin. So every time you disobey your parents or you hurt your brother or sister or you tell a lie, that's a sin against God and it deserves eternal punishment from God. That's punishment forever, without end. That's what we all deserve. We all deserve to experience death in hell forever. But Jesus died to take the punishment that we deserve. He tasted death for us. He helps us in the way that we need it most by paying the price our sins deserve. He tasted death for us so that death can have no power over us. Because Jesus tasted death, whoever believes in Jesus, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believe, lives and believes in Jesus shall never die. Has Jesus tasted death for you? Trust in Jesus and his death will pay the price your sin deserves. Jesus saves us by tasting death. Another way that Jesus saves us is by defeating our enemy, the devil. We see this in verses 14 and 15. It says that Jesus became a man and died for the purpose of destroying the one who has the power of death, the devil. The devil isn't some spooky thing that, like, you know, 17th century English people believed in. The devil is real. The devil is God's enemy. The devil is sort of the personification of power, the power of sin and death that rules the world in which we live. The devil is the one who enslaves us. On our own, we're powerless to overcome the devil. But the Son of God took on flesh so that he could defeat the devil by suffering death. The devil is also the great deceiver and accuser of God's people. He would like us all to make shipwreck of faith by looking for, for life and hope in the things of this world. The devil wants to destroy Christians, but Jesus has to saved us by destroying the devil. When He died and rose again from the dead, the sinless Savior Jesus, He broke Satan's power over us. So God's people have been set free from the tyranny of the devil. That's the second way Jesus saves. He saves by defeating the devil. The third way that Jesus is our savior who helps us is by bringing us to glory. Again, this is another one of those tiny phrases. It's almost like slipped in here in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus brings many sons to glory. Jesus is the son of God who makes sons of God out of those who trust in Jesus. Jesus is the one who's now crowned with glory and honor who brings sinners to glory by washing away their sin, by purifying them. Because of the saving work of Christ, hell is not our destiny. Glory is. We are united with our brother in faith, and so by God's grace... We share in his victory over sin and death. Jesus, our Savior, helps us by bringing us to glory. So when you're tempted, remember the Savior. Satan would have us believe that we are powerless to fight temptation. It's no use, he says. He tells us we are weak and pathetic. When, when Satan brings temptation, he says, You know what you are. You've given in a thousand times, and you're going to give in this time. But hear the word of God, which he's spoken through his son, Jesus. He says, I have destroyed the devil. Don't grow weary in the face of temptation. Don't give up. Don't give in to the ways of death, because I have tasted death for you and delivered you from it. Jesus tells us here in Hebrews You're not destined to death, but you are my children and I'm bringing you to glory. In the face of overwhelming suffering and temptation, Jesus says, sing with me the praises of the God who saves. Jesus is our savior. Jesus helps us as our savior. We fight temptation by remembering the savior, by trusting in Jesus, our savior. Brothers and sisters, we are meant to fight temptation together as a church, and we do this by pointing each other to Jesus, our brother and our Savior. Of course, Jesus, I mean, Hebrews' name is one specific way that Jesus is our helper, and that is Jesus helps us as our high priest. Jesus helps us in his high priestly service. Because he is our brother who became like us and was tempted, and because he was our savior and tasted death for us, and because he rose victoriously over sin and death, he became our merciful and faithful high priest. He is able to offer himself to God as the sacrifice that turns away God's wrath from sinners. Once again, that's what that long word propitiation means. The turning away of wrath. We talked about that in our Leviticus study, how God was pleased to turn his wrath away because of the, the people's faithful offering of their lambs at the altar. But here we see the ultimate propitiation. That Jesus turns away God's wrath from us as our high priest, offering himself. So when we are tempted, our high priest would say to us, I have secured access for you to the living God. Instead of going to the way of sin, Here is the path of of life-giving presence of God. Or in the words of Jeremiah, God is the fountain of life, so, so don't bother with digging broken cisterns for yourselves that will hold no water. See, Christ would have us see that the promises of sin are empty and they will destroy us. But our high priest purifies us from sin so that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. The author calls Christ the merciful high priest. Jesus is exalted in heaven, but he's not far off from us. He's merciful in a way that only someone who has been tempted by sin can be merciful. All of his work is for the purpose of showing mercy to sinners. Christ is glorified when we rely on his mercy. In the face of temptation, don't forget your merciful high priest. And he's also the faithful high priest. He's not like the corrupt priests of Israel who preyed upon the people. Christ, the faithful high priest, is in no danger of polluting God's sanctuary because of his own sin. And in his faithfulness, he never tires of showing mercy. He gives and gives, and his supply of mercy is never depleted. Because God forgave you yesterday, it's not like he has less mercy for you today. He is our faithful and merciful high priest. He is faithfully merciful and mercifully faithful. Jesus helps us as our merciful and faithful high priest. And this brings us back to where we started. Do you see the greatness of this salvation that God has revealed in Christ? Since we have such a great salvation, don't drift away from it. There's nothing you can find in the world or any religion or philosophy that will improve upon Christ. As a matter of fact, those other things will destroy you. If you abandon Christ for those things, you have no way of escape from judgment. And so lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. When temptation presses in, when you think that you can't endure it or fight it for one second longer, don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Don't neglect the great salvation that you have in Christ. Look to Jesus, our brother, our Savior, our High Priest, our Helper. Our brother became like us, and never wavered in faith. Our Savior tasted death for us. Our High Priest purified us from sin. Jesus is bringing us to glory. Jesus helps us when we're tempted. Let's pray. Father, we pray for eyes and hearts to understand the greatness of our salvation in Christ. We pray for your help not to neglect it. Even in the moments following this service, if we're tempted to sin in some way or to to doubt you, help us to lay hold of Jesus, our brother, our savior, our high priest. We pray that as a church, We will grow in helping each other to fight temptation. Help us to be bold, to point each other to Christ. Make our conversations about the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.